Let's bow together now in prayer. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for the God that you are, amazing God. And what a privilege it has been today to worship you as that God and drive your truth into our lives now as we open your book and we look into it. We look forward to what you have to say. Tune it to our hearts, exactly what we need. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you noticed that some people's idea of the Christian faith is a whole lot different than God's idea of the Christian faith? Human beings have the ability to take something and run with it and change it. Many years ago, I stumbled across a story that I've often told, and I want to share it this morning because I think it gets to the heart of this matter. Some of you old-timers will remember a great journalist and a humorist named Irma Bombach. Great writer. I believe we'll see her in heaven. I think she might have been a believer, not sure, but... One day she was in church and she's sitting toward the back and right in front of her in the seats right in front of her is this cute little three, four-year-old girl, cute as a button, and she was not being disruptive whatsoever in the service. She's a kid, little kid. Partway through the sermon, and of course she's not exactly able to track with the pastor, she kind of stands up on her seat and turns around and looks at the people in back of her and she's got the grin and smile on her face, not disrupting, not talking, just a big smile looking at people. And her mother sees that and says, sit down and wipe that grin off your face. You're in church. <laughs> and she swatted the girl on her bottom. The girl kind of turned around and slumped down in her chair and big tear trickling down the cheek. Her mother looked at her and said, that's better. Is that the Christian faith of your Jesus? I don't really think so. I appreciate what the mother's trying to do. I, 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 I kind of have a feel for it. You know, she wants some solemnness. and I get it. But the Jesus that I read of in the Bible was good with children. They came to him. And his disciples want to say, hey, kids, stay away. No, no, let the children come to me, Jesus said. I don't know, when I consider what many Christians have done and what many churches have done to Christianity, and then I look at the statistics that show church attendance is diving in our country, and I look at the large number of teens that move out of high school graduation and don't return to church, I begin to wonder if they're really seeing the Jesus behind our faith or if they're seeing our systems of religion in churches. Today's sermon allows us to go into that just a little bit. We're actually continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. We're into chapter 2 at this point. Tendency is for people to think, oh, you know, uh, we're, we're doing some of the miracles right now, Jesus. So we see Jesus healing a guy, you know, born by four people, tearing a roof off and lowering the guy down on his mat in front of Jesus. And Jesus forgives his sins and heals him. It's great. It's wonderful. And then we go on to the next one. And Jesus calls Matthew, Levi as one of his disciples. And Jesus goes to a party that matters. Oh, these are isolated instances in the life of Jesus. No, 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 no. We're in a series of them right now of five 
controversial encounters that Jesus has with the religious leaders because they've set up their system of religion, and Jesus ain't fitting in. He's bringing something new and fresh, something that people can enjoy. It's not stale. It's not a bunch of rules and regulations. It started back at the end of chapter 1. Jesus heals a man of leprosy, and he forgives the man's sins, and word spreads rapidly of what Jesus has done. And, of course, the religious leaders here, so they start tracking on this Jesus. By the opening of chapter 2, four men are bringing a lame man on a mat, and they tear the roof off the house and lower him down in front of Jesus because the place is so crowded they can't get in. Matt spoke on this a couple weeks ago, and, and Jesus heals the man and forgives his sin. And the religious leaders are there, you can't forgive sin. Only God can do that. Well, Jesus is saying, well, guess what? I'm God. They missed it. They were so caught in their religiousness. And they didn't like that about Jesus. Last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus called a man who was a social outcast, a tax collector in that day, social outcast. Jesus calls him to be one of his 12 to follow him. And Matthew throws a party for all of his social outcast friends. And Jesus shows up there. and Religious leaders are right there to say, why is your master, why, why is Jesus with those social outcasts? He should stay away from those people. They're sinful. It's a different kind of religion, faith, that Jesus is bringing. Today we're looking at a section where Jesus' disciples are not fasting. And some of the people and the religious leaders are certainly a part of this, accusing Jesus, why aren't your guys fasting? All the disciples of John fast, and all the disciples of the Pharisees fast. Yours don't, how come? Big controversies going on here. And then comes the controversy over the Sabbath. And the religious leaders can't understand why Jesus won't observe the Sabbath the way they think it should be observed. In fact, by the end of that instance, the religious leaders are so upset with Jesus, they are now plotting to kill him, to murder him. How can religious leaders justify in their, man, in their minds the murder of Jesus? Because he won't do religion the way they do it. How far do religious people go today? How far do churches go today in establishing what they think is their faith? And they turn so many off. And it's not a real vital and fresh relationship with Jesus. Today I'm reading from Mark chapter 2. This story, in the middle of these controversies, is about Jesus and his disciples fasting. And then it moves into the issue of Jesus and the Sabbath and what he believes. Follow as I read in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, 
so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from him, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will be pulled away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, and if he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskin will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Now, here comes the Sabbath conflict. Watch. One day, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples were walking along. And they began to pick some of the heads of grain. And the Pharisees looked to him, uh, said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered into the house of God, and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful for only priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. May God bless the reading of his word. And now we enter the section where Dan comments on this portion of Scripture. I want to begin with a question on, that uh, Jesus uh, answers uh, beginning in verse 18, the question on fasting. Now, John's disciples, the Pharisees' disciples, they're fasting away, and some of the people come and they ask Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours don't? How come yours don't? Criticism, obviously. People asking the questions. They look around. Well, what's religion look like? Well, there's the Pharisees and their disciples. They fast. Okay, there's John. He's religious and his disciples are. Jesus, you're supposed to be. How come? It's a logical question. It's understandable. Fasting is where you actually postpone your eating. You don't eat regularly so you can take that time and that energy and show God just how intent your heart is for something as you seek him and ask for direction and seek him for what his will is on some issue. Fasting is an important part of a spiritual person's life. People couldn't understand why Jesus' disciples were not fasting. Remember the story of Jesus told of the two men that went to the temple to pray? One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. In Luke chapter 18, verses 12, 11 and 12, the Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. He exalts himself. I'm not like a robber or evildoer, an adulterer, even like this tax collector over here, the second person praying. I pray twice a week. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all of my income. That's the prayer of the religious leader. He has shaped his religious beliefs in the direction that he thinks they should go, and he really thinks in his heart he's honoring God as he keeps his list of rules. The tax collector is there falling on his knees and begging for mercy, knowing that he's a sinner and that he needs forgiveness, and he asks for it. Of the two, which do you think God was more pleased with? It's quite obvious it's the tax collector. 
Faith in God looks different than some religious leaders and religious people make it out to be. It is interesting, when you look at this passage, you notice that the Pharisee is fasting twice a week. Do you know that the Old Testament Scripture only demanded that the Jewish people fast one day a year, Day of Atonement, that celebration period? You can check it out in the Old Testament. So what the religious leaders did was this. They thought, well, this is great, fasting one, it's very spiritual. Whoa, wouldn't it be cool if we fasted more than one day, we'd be even more spiritual. Whoa! You don't get to determine what is spiritual and what's not. God does. So the religious Pharisees actually constructed a whole elaborate series of rules, and we'll come to this in a couple of minutes. Actually, there's about 39 of them that we know about. And, and they determined we're going to fast twice a week because we're really super spiritual. And they're going around keeping all their rules about fasting and about Sabbathing and about everything else in life, thinking this made them spiritual. And here comes the Lord Jesus bringing freshness and vitality and the two are, are like water and oil. They're not going to mix. That's the controversy that's developing through these passages, these stories. And so much so that at the end of it, in chapter 3, the religious leaders will actually say, this guy's got to go, we've got to kill him. And they can justify it in their minds. They're so far off base It's amazing how far off base people can become. Fasting twice a week makes you more spiritual when God said, once a year is sufficient, do this for me. So they developed their elaborate set of rules about what religion really looked like and what spiritual people look like. And they made it far more important than a relationship to Jesus and loving him and fellowshipping with him and his people. Their systems did not have room for people. People are more important than religious systems. Jesus will now argue from his standpoint using three illustrations. The first one is mentioned in verses 19 and 20. It's the illustration of the bride and the bridegroom. Don't miss what he's saying. The text is quite clear. Jesus said, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot. So uh, long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. At this time in Jewish history, wedding feasts were a week long. And the bride and groom would hold up at their new home and many a family and friends would come to greet them and a week-long celebration, and often there would be music and dancing, and oftentimes in the culture, the bride and the groom said, this was the best week of our lives. Jesus' argument is very clear. Why would I have my disciples fast like John's and the Pharisees when their groom is with them. They're celebrating. This is not about fasting. There's a time to fast, time not to fast. When I go away, Jesus is predicting his death. When the time comes when the bridegroom will be taken from them, a hint of his death, 
then my disciples will fast. Why would you fast when you got the groom there and you're in the party time? Religious leaders had no room for this in their system. They couldn't understand it. The second illustration comes in verse 21. Jesus has just shown that something new and fresh and joy-filled should be what the relationship with God is about, not a bunch of rules. Now he will talk about what he is bringing in terms of newness and freshness. He first speaks in the second illustration of the patch. No one sews a patch on unshrunk cloth with an, uh, up on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will simply pull away from the old and making the tear worse. Both my mother and my wife have a bag where they keep pieces of old denim, like jeans. They've been worn, they've been washed many times. Because if our jeans get a hole in it, they can mend that in there and it will work with the washed jeans. If they had new pieces of denim and they sewed it onto the old jeans that had already shrunk, guess what? The new piece that they've sewn in is going to shrink when it's washed. And what's going to happen? It's going to tear and make the tear worse than ever. What is Jesus saying here? He is saying, I'm the new patch. And I haven't been all wet yet. And you guys got your old system. And you know what? You can't put my new patch on your old system. It's not going to work. It's oil and water. They don't mix. He gives another illustration, a third illustration now. It's about wineskins. And this is even a little further from us, perhaps, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, pour the new wine into new wineskins. What in the world is that about? A wineskin was probably a goat's hide that had been partially tanned, and they tie off the four feet, and then they pour the grape juice in through the head-throat area, and they tie it off, and then, of course, the grape juice begins to ferment. And and the wineskin stretches and stretches, and, and it holds the wine. Then you consume the wine. You can't reuse the wineskin, because the second time when you put the grape juices and it's ferment, the skin can't flex anymore. And it ruptures. And then you lose your wine and your wineskin. The skin gets used once, and you can't put the new stuff in that. Jesus says, I'm new wine. You can't put me in these old skins of these old religious. We're not going to work. We're not going to work together. Have you noticed that oftentimes religious systems do not follow what God wants? This is hard for some people to handle, regular church-going people. They want the best, but this is the problem. So now we see that these religious leaders are consistently colliding with Jesus. And eventually they will conclude this guy's got to go. And they justify in their minds that they need to murder him. We now come to verse 23, which is where the conflict over the Sabbath day comes. Matt will develop this text even further next week with the next section where it climaxes with the religious leaders concluding Jesus has to die and they begin to plot his death. 
But here, over the Sabbath day, the controversy is reaching a climax now. Starting in verse 23, notice the criticism of the religious leaders. One day, one Sabbath day, Jesus was going through the grain fields. His disciples are walking along with him. They began to pick some heads of the grain, and the Pharisees said to him, Look, look, why are they doing what is unlawful in the Sabbath? You'll notice I've highlighted two words here, the Sabbath and unlawful. Sabbath, as God had said in the Old Testament, keep my day holy. Saturday, no work. That was God's law. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, are accusing Jesus of doing what is unlawful. What are they doing? They're walking through a grain field, and as they go, they're picking grain. Now, we get this all messed up in our culture because we don't understand what was happening in that day. We think, well, if you're walking through somebody's grain, you don't steal their grain. Actually, the Old Testament made a provision. You don't have food, and you're going through the grain field. Go ahead and pick a few grains. You know, you rub it in your hands and get rid of the, 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 the outside shell. You kind of shuck it a little bit, and you're left with a wheat and a little snack there, and you pop it. The Old Testament was clear. If you do that because you're hungry, don't use a sickle. Don't go in there harvesting this guy's stuff. It's his. But you're allowed to take a little bit of wheat for a snack. It's okay. What the religious leaders had done was they took this much, much further. The Sabbath day, it is to be kept holy. How do we keep it holy? And this is where they developed 39 rules of how you keep the Sabbath. And to them, it was more important to keep the 39 rules than to do what God had said in the Ten Commandments, keep my day holy. So now they're going to impose upon people all 39 rules, and some of these are absolutely ridiculous. I'll give you an example of a couple of them. They didn't just do this with Sabbathing. They did this with every area of life. We, have, we know of volumes of stuff that they produce, rules of how to live for God. This will make you holy. This will make you spiritual. And it killed the faith. Jesus is going to set them straight on this. He'll say, you guys are not Lord of the Sabbath. He'll eventually say, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Thank you very much. I'll determine what's right and wrong, not you guys. Want to know some of the 39 things they said about Sabbath? First of all, do not kill insects. Did you ever chase a fly around your house with a fly swatter? (laughs) That's work. Can't do that on the Sabbath. None of that stuff. Second of all, you can't take a bath on the Sabbath. You say, oh my goodness, that's awful. Well, you see, you could spill some bath water on the floor, and then when you have to get down there and mop it up, that's work, and you can't work on the Sabbath. See what they're doing? They make this long, li- God never said any of that. Another one, you can't move furniture in your house. Some people say, well, I understand that's heavy. No, no, that had nothing to do with the weight of the furniture. When you push or pull your furniture along in your dirt floor, the legs are going to make marks in the ground, and that's like plowing a furlough. And you can't plow on the Sabbath day, so you can't plow in your... Plow? 
This is ridiculous. This is what people who are trying to be spiritual on their own and not following God's way, this is how they actually stifle true faith in God. Sick people, they were not allowed to seek treatment on the Sabbath. You say, why not? Because the person that treats you has to work to fix you. We can't have them working, so you just have to be sick on the Sabbath. You see, we just took what God gave us as a period of rest, and we turned it into something that now you got to do all this stuff, and it's no longer rest. And if you're sick, you can't get help. Jesus says, thank you very much. You, can no, you can't be Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. One more. You ladies will love this one. You cannot look in a mirror, ladies, on the Sabbath. Because if you look in the mirror, <laughs> you might have some adjustments to make, all right? And here, here's one of the things. You know, if you want to put on jewelry, you can't put on jewelry that weighs more than a dried fig because that would be lifting weight. What Jesus is bringing, the freedom, the relationship with God cannot be put into that system. No wonder Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you who are, who are weary, heavy laden. I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You ever been a part of a religious system that wants to put all kinds of man-made rules and traditions on you and insist that if you're going to be spiritual, that's what you have to do? One question you should ask that system. Where do you see that in the Bible? That is such a great question. See what the religious leaders said? Look, why are they doing what is unlawful? It's not unlawful according to the Bible. It's unlawful according to their rules. They don't get to be Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And all the rules and the death of their religious system goes right out the window when Jesus shows up. People need that message today. Because a lot of people have given up on religious organizations and the church and even on Jesus because they have not understood this. They have watched religious leaders and people who think they are spiritual kill the Christian faith with their legalisms and their own ways. God says that's not my law, that's their law. So. Jesus concludes this passage in verses 25 and 26 with further illustrations. He gives the illustration of David, who has been anointed as king, but he's not yet in the king position. Saul has not yet died. Verse 25, Jesus says, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he went actually entered the house of God, the synagogue or whatever, and he ate bread. He ate consecrated bread that is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he
also gave some to his companions. David is running from his life from Solomon, and the man is hungry, and his companions are hungry, and there's no food, so they go into the place of worship. And the high priest says, you're hungry. Uh, every seven days, they bake fresh bread and put it into the holy holy place, and, and they removed the previous seven loaves of the 12 loaves from the golden table, and they took those, and the priest could eat those. And the high priest is saying, well, you know, let me share some of my bread with you guys because you're hungry. Jesus is saying if David could eat the priest's bread, there's nothing wrong with what the scriptures teach of my disciples walking through a field, finding a little bit of wheat, and popping it for a snack. I'm not unlawful according to what God says in the Bible. I'm unlawful by your religious laws. Get rid of your religious laws. They don't make you spiritual. They weigh you down. They stifle life. You can read the story of David, 1 Samuel 21. Jesus closes the passage by making a great claim about himself. He closes it by saying in verse 27, he said to them, the Sabbath wasn't made for man. Man was made for the Sabbath. Sabbath wasn't made so you could serve it and keep all the rules. Like don't get health care on the Sabbath because the health worker would have to work. The Sabbath was made for your good. You don't serve it. It's there for you. It is a great principle that Jesus gave. The Sabbath was made for us, not us to serve the Sabbath. See it? And then Jesus closes with where Matt will pick it up next week. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The religious leaders don't get to be Lord and master of the Sabbath. There is one Lord and master of the Sabbath. It is Jesus. One of the names of Jesus in the Bible is Lord Sabaoth. Sabbath. Lord Sabbath. Remember, mighty fortress is our God. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age, the saint. That's, that's one of his names. He is the Lord of rest. What is this with all of the religious rules? Do it our way. This will make you more spiritual. And so Christians have insisted on having their own way on dress and on music and on rules and certain versions of the Bible. Welcome to Calvary where we do not fight about these things. We're not going to. Because if you come with those questions, we will simply say, where do you see that in the Bible? We're going to follow what Jesus said. We're going to stay as tight as we can. And we're not perfect at it. We're going to stay as tight as we can with the faith, the freshness, the vitality of a relationship with Jesus. It does not come through a series of rules, man-made rules. That can't bring life. Life is in Jesus. Now, as I wrap this up today, and I bring us to the communion table, perhaps there are those who have been with us that have been turned off somewhat to Christianity by examples you've seen of Christian faith and by what you've seen Christian leaders and Christian people do in the name of God. 
and it's been a turnoff. It's not something in the Bible. If God says something in the Bible, we're going to obey it, because if not, we'd be hypocrites, okay? Plain simple. It's all the other stuff that Christians make up to make themselves look spiritual. If you're here today and you've been turned off by the faith, would you give Jesus another chance rather than being turned off by the hypocrites? Would you understand that Jesus really does love you and he offers something filled with life and freshness? Not old stale systems that are death-like. Freshness. Vitality, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, joy beyond human conditions. That's our Savior. Remember, He died for your sins so your sin could be forgiven, so your sin could be erased and you could be with Him in heaven. Would you bow with me, please? If you're here and you have not made that decision, I encourage you to trust Jesus to forgive your sin and enter into a new and a fresh relationship with him. For others who have made that decision, in just a moment we're coming to the elements of the communion table the bread which is his body that was sacrificed for us for our forgiveness of our sins, his blood which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And we need to come back here because this is where the life is. This is where the freshness is. It's not in systems. It's not in rules, man-made rules. I'm so grateful that Jesus was so wise that he said, you would have continued to receive these elements until I return. He hasn't come back yet, folks, so gather your elements, your piece of bread, your cup. We'll start with the bread here in a moment, but first, take a moment to make sure that there is no unconfessed sin in your life. You want to be pure as you come to this moment in the worship service because God loved you so much. He died for the forgiveness of your sin, and you don't want to flippantly come, oh yeah, Jesus died for me. No, you want to be sure. There's no unconfessed sin in your life. Confess right now to him. Father, we enter this holy moment that you gave us. We didn't devise it. You gave it to us. And we're so glad that together, people of all different walks of life, nobody better than anybody else, we come to you and we know we all need salvation and you've provided it. And today we remember. So folks, would you take your piece of bread? Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Father, for the body of Jesus that was sacrificed for us so we don't have to pay for our sins. You forgive us. It's your holy way. Thank you for that. And now would you take your cup, please?
And Jesus said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, our Father, for the blood of our Lord Jesus shed on our behalf. No more animals to sacrifice at an altar and shed their blood because the blood of the perfect lamb was shed for us. And now we're your children. We've been forgiven. Thank you. We push aside all the religious systems and everything that corrupts our minds about Christianity and the disappointments we have, and we just focus on Jesus. And it's so fresh and real. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for this great plan of salvation. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Dan, would you lead us in our traditional singing at this moment? Let's stand up. And if you are comfortable holding hands with the person next to you, go ahead and hold hands as we join together. Let's be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to As we depart here today, let's go out with shoulders higher because we're not under the mandates of people and their ideas of what spirituality is. Jesus has told us where life is. It's in him and what he says, not what others say. So I close today with a benediction from Hebrews 13. And may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you for everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless. You're dismissed.